Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I mean to plant a flag in the sand for conscious, willful people to gather, organize, empathize, and capsize the established order of things. Our opposition? Team Machine, Team Capitalism, Team Algorithm, Team No Team, I'm my own team. Being human is a team sport, so thanks for playing. Playing for Team Human today, technology and society researcher Molly Sauter. It's very easy to think that you don't need to know people or a city in a different way if you have an infinity of numbers that you can use to quote-unquote model them. Molly, the author of The Coming Swarm, DDoS Actions, Hacktivism, and Civil Disobedience on the Internet, will be helping us see how stupid some smart city visions really are. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. There's lots of excitement ahead. We're finally launching our Team Human Live series Thursday, June 21st at the Alchemist's Kitchen in the Village in New York. It's really a small audience preview and test run for our coming series of Team Human Live events. I think we're looking at 10 bucks for guests and free for Team Human subscribers. Our guest will be the founder of SomaSpace, a great friend of mine and one of the folks who really helped me understand the non-generic nature of time, Mark Filippi. Again, that's Thursday, June 21st at the Alchemist Kitchen. We will have a way to get tickets for that at teamhuman.fm or at patreon.com slash teamhuman, or at the Alchemist Kitchen website, or at an Eventbrite that I will post on the teamhuman.fm site. You can subscribe to and support Team Human 
Again, through teamhuman.fm or patreon.com slash teamhuman. In addition to free admission to all of our Team Human live events, there's also various perks and ways to be involved with the greater Team Human community. So I encourage you to take a look and consider supporting the show. Things have been coming around full circle for me lately. It's a weird moment where a lot of the things I was thinking about and approaches I had to people and technology and culture in the early 90s, uh, I'm feeling them again. Sometimes I'm being just reminded of them internally and sometimes from the outside. I got a bunch of emails lately. People somehow coincidentally were all asking if I had a copy of a talk I gave in South by Southwest back in 1996 when it was, you know, a tiny, well, the interactive part was this tiny little festival. And uh, I gave a talk called Why Futurists Suck. And it was because they wanted me to speak about the future of the internet or the techno-utopian future. And I just hated futurists, especially right then. I felt like the those of us who had been celebrating the internet in the late 80s and early 90s were not so much future-focused as present-focused. We were enjoying what these technologies offered. We were looking at some of the possibilities for the redistribution of wealth and uh, collective consciousness and all sorts of things, but it wasn't really so future-focused as present-focused. And those who were future-focused, I felt, the futurists who were on the cover of Wired magazine or joining the Global Business Network, they were focused on business, on the long boom, on becoming consultants. And it seemed that their technique was by making the future somehow scary or difficult to understand or shrouded in mystery and the amount of change coming being so overwhelming. They were just creating a place for themselves and their own uh, high hourly rates in the corporations of America. There's nothing like the future to scare corporations into trying to prepare for it. So I was suspicious of the future for that reason. And then really over the next years, as I read about uh, Aboriginal cultures and indigenous religions and some of the pre-Judeo-Christian ways of understanding the world, I really started to think of the future itself, this whole notion of linear time as problematic. You know, it's a great thing. You know, without the future, we don't get progress. The whole notion of having a past and a future, which was part of what we got with the invention of text and writing and the ability to write down our histories and create contracts for the future. This whole notion is part of what makes progress possible. We can measure ourselves today against ourselves tomorrow and yesterday and say, okay, things are getting better. More people are fed or less people are fed. More people have jobs or less people have jobs. The the environment is getting hotter or the environment's not getting hotter. Progress is terrific on on a whole lot of levels, but this focus on progress and on the future has made our experience of the world much more linear than it is circular. 
we can much more easily think of ourselves as kind of driving a car into the future. All that matters is what's in front of us. And all the exhaust and crap that we're spitting out behind us, well, that kind of doesn't matter. This future-focused and in some ways progressive tradition makes it a little bit easier to externalize some of the damage, some of the crap that we we don't want to be looking at. Whereas when we have a more circular understanding or a more presentist understanding of the world, then the slavery that we're using today for tomorrow's electric vehicles or the pollution that we're making today for tomorrow's great internet, the people we are uh, displacing from their homes today to make for tomorrow's great smart city, um, you can't tolerate that anymore. You can't just put that out of sight. All of our garbage and everything that we do is all somehow coming back to us. And this regenerative or even uh, reincarnative quality of life can easily get lost if we employ this very futurist understanding of our world. You know, when we start talking to companies and organizations about the future, they also think of the future as this fixed thing. You know, they always want me to tell them, well, what's going to happen? What's it going to be like 10 years from now or 20 years from now so that they can prepare for it? So they see the future as something that's inevitable and their wiggle room is to prepare for that inevitability. How is it going to be so I can be ready for it? Whereas really what they need to be doing is thinking, what future do we want to make so that we can we can determine that future with our actions today? Our actions right now are what make the future. So the future is not this thing to be used by... Uh, black box futurists to coerce or convince people of the future they want, which is what? One where technology runs everything and where technologists are the only ones you can call upon to help you. I mean, that's the future that they're going to pitch. That's the Wired magazine future. That's the way the magazine sold itself in the 90s to everybody. They said, technology is really hard. The world's getting more technological. You will never understand this. You need our writers and our experts and the people we're putting on our covers to shepherd you through this dangerous, strange time. And I see that reflected in so much, even some of the well-meaning stuff. When I see Elon Musk proclaim that, oh, we've got to be worried about AI, you know, that's almost like a, a sigil. It's to keep us off guard. He focuses on this fantasy of uh, AI, even dangerous AI, as a sales technique, as a way of saying, oh, this stuff's inevitable. It's going to happen. And it keeps us focused on that fantasy of the future instead of the present, which is a world of energy inefficient electric cars. You know, <laughs> it's really not the electric future. When you see a Tesla, you're not seeing our electric future. You're seeing inefficient electric cars that have a bigger carbon footprint and a bigger slavery footprint than the plain old gasoline clunkers that you could be driving. Yes, it's possible that as we drive these cars, we're doing the research and development for some future version of an electric car that actually will be 
long-term, more energy efficient, some future electric car that won't require, you know, kids to go down into caves to get rare earth minerals or these giant carbon footprints and and disposing of, of giant batteries. That's possible, but at least we should understand that the future really is something that we realize in the present. Preparing or planning for the future is fine, but the best way to actually affect it is by living appropriately right now. So before I hop into an electric car, I want right now to figure out how can we get the materials for that car without enslaving somebody? How can I ensure that the entire life cycle of this car is minimizing its carbon footprint rather than leveraging the carbon footprint before I drive it and after I drive it to make me feel better about driving it right now? Team Human cares about the future, but Team Human lives in the present. You know, playing for Team Human today is one of the great new internet scholars of our time, a person whose ability to distinguish between the true promise of technology and the empty promise of technology companies, Molly Sauter. When last I checked into the life of, of Molly Sauter, we were probably in Manhattan together and you were showing me how Pokemon Go works. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which was fun in its own right. And you were working on a fascinating PhD dissertation, which I take it you're still, uh, you're still chugging along on. I'm still working on it. Uh, my dissertation is looking at broadly how different models of innovation and different innovation markets develop in one place and then move to other places or are sold to other places. So specifically, I'm looking at how the San Francisco model of technology and innovation and markets develops in San Francisco in the 1970s through the early 2000s. And then gets picked up and sold to other cities as this is the type of market you want. If you want an economy, if you want a modern economy, you need an innovation economy. Um, and the location I'm looking at for the city that's buying this is Toronto. Oh, that's really interesting. Cause uh, it's like, I've been invited, you know, two or three times to, you know, what to me are kind of exotic countries or places like once it was Mexico city, and once it was Singapore. And with Mexico City, it was to go to this conference and talk about how can we make Mexico City the next Austin? You know, how do we make a South by Southwest for Mexico City? How do we get Adele or all these tech companies to come and do that? You know, and Singapore or, uh, yeah, I think it was actually in this last case, it was Malaysia. They wanted to do, they would turn Malaysia into the next Singapore. So. They were modeling Singapore as, oh, they have you know, outsourced this, and they can make chips, and they can do that. How can we do that here? And before I went, I tried to explain to them, well, really what you're looking at is how to turn you know, Malaysia into kind of a client state of 
giant American tech firms. And, you know, you're, you're building stuff, but without gaining real competencies. And do you really want to be part of that fast growth Silicon Valley culture? Or can you take a different model and do something more circulatory or that's going to help more people or promote a different kind of entrepreneurship? And they can't look at it that way. They really do look at, let's model someone else's uh, someone else's strategy rather than come up with something that maybe is more appropriate to our place and people. Yeah. Uh, so yesterday I was at the second of the Sidewalk Toronto roundtable meetings. So uh-huh. Sidewalk Toronto is one of my major case studies. It's a project by a sister company of Google to build a smart city neighborhood on the Toronto waterfront. And part of the things that they're selling the city on is that this project will let Toronto be the hub of the new urban innovation market. And there are some parts of Toronto that are really buying that, that are really wanting to be this new center of this type of tech development. Um, But there are also lots of parts of Toronto that are very suspicious, that really see this as a continuation of Canada's economic history with the states and with a country like the like the UK and are really seeing this as a resource extraction project by Google and Alphabet and Sidewalk. Um, so it's been really interesting to go to these big community meetings that Sidewalk is pitching as like, oh, these are consultations. We care about what the community has to say um, because that they really are sales meetings. They're trying to sell the community on the on this project. Well, yeah, you look at any, uh, uh, you know, civic, uh, civic sales and, and consent uh, uh, articles, and it's all, they always say the first thing, start by listening, you know? Yeah. <laughs> let, and it's let just like, feel heard. <laughs> they're just saying the same things that they were saying, that they've been saying since the deal got announced in October. Um, unfortunately, Toronto's civic tech community has a very strong sort of critical ability and a strong, strong critical stance. And so I see the same people at these meetings and they have good questions and they ask them and they're really, they're really caring about organizing in the community and making sure that people are aware of sort of what the issues are and what the questions are that they should be asking. Because, you know, Sidewalk's a really slick salesperson. They've made some really interesting hires over the past couple of months uh, in terms of people who used to work in Canadian government or people who used to be part of the Canadian university system to advocate for them in the city. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting project. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for, for me and, and listeners who aren't, you know, totally up on this issue, kind of what's wrong with making a city smarter and more high tech and creating workspaces and places for young entrepreneurs to come up with great digital ideas and create the next, you know, Foursquare or Twitter or something like that out of the, the burgeoning, you know, new tech hub of, of Toronto. Oh, man. Okay. So there, there are a bunch of things that you've just articulated there, and um, I'm going to isolate them a little <laughs> bit. So the workspaces thing is really interesting because actually one of my other case studies is WeWork. Right. Yeah. So WeWork is this huge $2 billion valuation, like, co-working company. And what WeWork claims to do is like, oh, well, we make spaces for people to come and like do the entrepreneurship and like they'll be in these entrepreneurial communities and these buildings and it'll be, and it'll be great. And 
a lot of people have been looking at their valuations. So they have a $2 billion valuation, billion with a B, and they're like, what the hell? Why is this is very high? Why is this so high? Is this company overvalued? And if you look at them as like a startup that has like a social aspect, they have their own social media that they run in-house for their community. And if you look at all those things, it's like, yeah, okay, maybe. But they're not a startup. They are a real estate portfolio. They do long-term leases and pro- an outright property acquisition and into their international real estate portfolio. And then they re-rent that space out to their consumer market at a ludicrous markup. It costs anywhere between $400 and like $700 to rent a hot desk in one of these buildings. And a hot desk is a desk that isn't yours. <laughs> it's like, you can come sit in the lobby and drink our free coffee and tea um, and beer. They have free beer in all the places that aren't San Francisco. Um, and what they're selling is the idea of the experience of working at a big five tech company. So you go into these buildings, they've all, they're all like legacy industry buildings. So one of the ones I visited in San Francisco used to be a bank and one of the, there are now two in Toronto and one of the ones I visited is in a big office building and the other one is in a sort of a big brick heritage building uh, downtown um, and they redo them to be cool and hipster and trendy and industrial. So like when I went to go visit the bank one in San Francisco, it has all of, all of its ductwork has been exposed. And I'm like, I don't think the bank had this. I think that you guys did this because this is an aesthetic and they have the free coffee. They have the free beer in a lot of places. In San Francisco, they've replaced the beer with kombucha because they were inadvertently in violation of San Francisco's liquor laws. They, I, when I was walking in, the in-house masseuse was walking out. They're staffed entirely by cool young people. You can bring your dog. Uh, and they have social events that you can do with all of the other startup people in your building. So they're selling this idea of what it's like to work in tech. Right. It's like a, uh, there are these little almost beautiful Hollywood sets of South of Market circa 2007 or Williamsburg 2003 and people are pretty and clean and they got the beards that are good and the hair that's good and the surfaces are organic and the smells of new plaster and you walk in and I mean to their credit some person is going to now feel like I'm part of the tech world and I'm, I'm in the end. And maybe that then helps them. It motivates them to code better code or to think up better UXs, or I guess in the space, they might meet someone who becomes a partner in their next project or a lover <laughs> in their, in their next, their next relationship. Uh, you know, on the certain level, even though we can kind of talk about it cynically, on a certain level for a lot of people, it sounds all good. Yeah, like it's, it's a club. And they, you've, you can see this also in their acquisitions. Like they've recently acquired The Wing, which is a women's only social club that was founded to provide a space for professional women who needed to go somewhere to work during the day because they were traveling. And it's very nice. I visited one in New York City. They have lots of rose gold, lots of pink, 
lots of like various muted accents, lots of coral, very expensive products in the bathroom, showers, towel service, food. You can have a meeting there. You can go meet people there, like people who are your professional peers. Um, but WeWork has also been acquiring, like they acquired a coding school. They acquired meetup.com, you know, which is a company that I advised. And it was kind of scary to think, oh, here's this, you know, this, uh, uh, it was a, a company dedicated to helping people meet up really anywhere about anything. And now it's sort of getting sucked into this, you know, vortex of real estate investment, you know, getting people yep. to meet at WeWork uh, locations. Yeah, they acquired Meetup. They acquired their own coding school. They have their own in-house startup incubator now. Uh, they acquired a charter school because they want to roll their own in-house elementary school so if you have a kid you can bring your kid to work with you and your kid will go to school in the WeWork environment and you can work in the WeWork environment um they have their own residential that they've been rolling out over the past couple of years uh it's currently only exists i think in washington dc and new york um but you can rent like a multi-room apartment for your startup team in these places if you need to like be in dc to talk to lobbyists or lawmakers or you need to be in new york to be meeting with you know this vc or, or that management consultant uh, or that advertising firm and they really want to be a, a, a all needs met environment for startup businesses right um, and then so yeah. where and where where's the real or, or what's the easiest way i guess to express What's the problem with this? Is it just that it becomes a sort of spatial monopoly? I mean, one, it's creepy. I feel right. like the problem can best be described as, my, that's creepy. Um, and <laughs> I feel like a prob problem is sort of a, it's almost a simplistic way to put it because it's not necessarily a problem. What I'm interested in is how they're making this sale, how they're designing this future, and then pushing it out and being like, this is the future you want. This is, you should be paying us X amount of money a month to participate in this future. It's there. It's uh, they very cannily sort of isolated the images and feelings and gestalt of what it, what people think it feels like to work for a top five tech company and what people think it feels like to work in the startup industry. And they've packaged it up and they've presented it back and been like, if you give us between 500 bucks a month, if you're just one person or like a couple, like a, a thousand or more, if you are a full startup and you want us to roll your own office for you, which they will do, um, you too can be part of this economy and you can perform and enact the things that are part of this world. So you're um, thinking it's almost more that they've they've curated the the cultural signifiers for digital business success and kind of package them together so that you can go in and experience those experience people with really bright expensive sneakers or special you know uh, coffee machines and all those things that we associate with you know Silicon Valley cool people firms, but that 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 this doesn't necessarily a functioning equal digital economy create. It doesn't necessarily a functioning economy create, like not even a digital economy. Like the thing about 
WeWork, as I mentioned, that if you have a startup, you build, build your own office for you and they'll roll you your own office space. Um, but their office space is very expensive. And so functionally, they exist to, they exist as an appendage on the VC-backed entrepreneurial space. So they act as this sort of halfway point where after you get your VC investment, or if you are like a very highly paid consultant or something, you can ask, you can hire WeWork to give you an office space to live in before you get your own. They really only function economically for businesses that are receiving the vast influx of cash that a VC economy provides. Without that influx of cash, they make extremely little sense. Like no one who's bootstrapping their own startup is going to go work out of a WeWork. It would be an incredibly stupid use of limited funds. So it costs more, you're saying, for me to go to WeWork and get a few desks than it would to just find a, a little office to rent. Like, depending on your city, Toronto is also very expensive. Um, like, San Francisco, super expensive. Toronto, super expensive. Um, but it's up there with, like, getting your own office. Like, it is a very expensive place to set down your people. And if you can just, like, work out of cafes for a while, or if you can work out of someone's apartment, or if you can work out of any of the other number of co-working spaces that exist in this city um, that are all cheaper than we work, you'll do that. So WeWork is functioning, WeWork functions as long as the VC-backed startup economy functions. And the problem with the VC economy in Canada is that there isn't as much money sloshing around in Canada as there is in California. There are barely as many people sloshing around in Canada as there are in California. Mm. So when Canada says, oh, us too, we went in on this innovation economy, and this is a federally led push. So actually, when I was in San Francisco, um, Justin Trudeau was also in San Francisco. Hmm. He was pitching Canada as come build your satellite offices here. So we're hitting this point in the, in the Canadian economy where they don't know what they're going to do next. The tar sands aren't working. They're being, being very politically fraught, and they don't want to keep pushing that resource. So they need another one. And so they're pivoting to this innovation idea. So what you end up seeing is people saying, oh, American companies should come and be in Canada and American VC money should come and move to Canada because there isn't enough VC money that is Canadian to support an independent entrepreneurial economy here. And so what you end up actually seeing most of the time is that you'll have Canadian startups that do really well but they do really well off American money. And then when those American VCs sort of crook their finger and are like, hey, you can scale much better in San Francisco, they move. Right. Or they well, get yeah. hired or something, or they just accidentally, accidentally on purpose, dilute their Canadian ownership share to the point where it is actually not reasonable t- tax-wise for them to stay in Canada. Right. And the, and the, the WeWork thing and... and- even even this situation to some extent i mean it's part of almost this larger inability for people to see the the underlying systems that they're supporting mm-hmm. so you know there the it, it just it reminds me and i know you've written about them too it it it's hard to critique something that is friendly is open to the public is relatively uh it, easy to get in on the ground level of that looks like it's 
a, a leg up or an open call for participation in the economy of the future. And it feels a little bit like, you know, code for America or the code literacy movement or, you know, uh, Tim O'Reilly's, you know, well-meaning but probably wrong-headed uh, uh, proposals for a better VC style or a slower VC stock market or, you know what I mean? These, they're these, uh, uh, they, they feel almost like kind of neoliberal Clintonian, uh, uh, well-packaged, you know, new age Silicon Valley style, uh, uh, invitations, um, and, 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 and prescriptions for social good that it feels like what your work largely does is kind of reveal how most of these prescriptions really just uh, uh, perpetuate the the systems of, of power and control that if we were really going to do something that we would be trying to uh, uh, we'd be trying to critique or to dismantle. Yeah, like I went to this meeting yesterday and I, I know some people who work at Sidewalk uh, and I think they're good people uh, and I think they really believe in this project and I, but I also think that this project is fundamentally exploitative and is a resource grab and is not good for the city of Toronto. So one of my friends was like, well, what do you think we could do to make this project better? And I'm like, look, I have faith in you but I don't have faith in this company. I know what this company does. I know the people who, like, I know the people who run this company. They're all people who were involved in the redevelopment of the New York waterfront and, like, involved with the original New York City Olympic bids. Like, they're all private equity people. They have really cozy relationships with all of the developers that they've handed off development permissions to. They're bringing all of those people to Toronto with them. <laughs> like, and I... I I have faith in my friends, but I don't have, I have right. faith in, I have faith in this company to do exactly what it says on the box. I know, they, but they believe that they are doing well by doing good. They, they, they go to bed at night thinking of themselves as the, the as fighting the entrenched, you know, uh, no, like, I, I, Dan Doctorov has gone on the record believing, saying that he believes that the only good thing for a city to do is grow that growth, population growth, is the one marker he cares about when it comes to the health of a city. And Toronto doesn't have a problem with that. Toronto is like one of the only cities in Canada that has major positive population growth year after year because it's one of the only cities in Canada that has a persistent and like strong individual economy. It's where all the banks are. It's where all of the, it's like we have huge, a huge immigrant population because a lot of immigrants tend to settle in the GTA, the greater Toronto area. Um, so that has a knock-on effect where like once you have a one settled Im immigrant community from a specific area, a lot of immigrants from that global area will come to that community because it's already existing. The key believes that growth is what matters. Unfortunately, what matters for Toronto is our incredible housing shortage, the inability of Toronto itself as a city to levy taxes without the permission of the province, thus hamstringing everything about like our public transit, our ability to maintain our own infrastructure, and our ability to actually take care of the city. Like Our problems are not growth. Right. And as if growth 
even is something that a city, if a city needs to grow in order to be sustainable, then it's not sustainable. Yeah, like we don't, we don't need autonomous cars. We need an actually sustainable funding plan for a serious streetcar and subway system that doesn't keep getting axed. Right. There are real reasons why Toronto has the problems that it does, and none of them have to do with the fact that we don't have autonomous cars. Right. None but of them have to do with the fact that we don't have garbage robots running in tunnels. <laughs> so, like, there exactly. are all these... It's, it's but, like when I watch Jeff Bezos be like, well, the only thing I can spend all of my millions of dollars on is going to Mars. I simply can't think of anything else that I could possibly be spending billions of dollars on. And I'm just like, buddy, you're building a clock in a mountain. Like, <laughs> balance the federal budget. Like, pay for right. health care. Endow a new university. I don't care. But exactly. you're building a nonsense clock in a mountain, like, next to your rocket pad. Don't right. tell me that you simply don't know what to spend your money on. Right. Or or you've got so many extra Teslas that let's just, you know, let's just fly a Tesla into space. We're going to send a Tesla into space that definitely has a body in it. Like, <laughs> I, just, funny I, thing, I, I wanted to do a, uh, I wanted to write a, uh, uh, or create a fake internet meme that, that North Korea sent a rocket up to claim and to, to capture the Tesla that was in space and that, you know, and that Kim Jong-il is, is driving it as his car that he claimed <laughs> it, you know, that it's now an international territory. So he's allowed to have it, but it almost would make sense and be appropriate for someone to take that car and, and claim it as their own, except it would probably cost more to, to make a rocket to get it than just to buy one. But, but still it's, it's part of, I mean, on a certain level, part of the problem that you're talking about uh, is is cities uh, cities sense that the way to revitalize themselves is by plugging into some larger global tech economy thing. You know, in, in New York, um, when Bloomberg was mayor, he decided, uh, I'm going to give, you know, half of Roosevelt Island to, uh, to build an engineering school in New York City. And Instead of giving the money to, to City University of New York, which is New York's university, to build an engineering school. He, he gave it to a, Cornell. He gave it to Cornell. He did a bid. It was between Stanford and Cornell at the end. You it know, was so just now, like, how about two private universities? Right. Like, we'll just give them this thing. And, like, Stanford has had a cottage industry in, like, selling the idea of the academic industrial research cluster for a while. There was a dean they had, uh, Terman, who basically had his own little business in like going around and giving these lectures about like, oh, well, this is how you have Stanford. This is how you have this type of economy. Unfortunately, that isn't actually how you make the San Francisco tech economy. The San Francisco tech economy is a combination of one, the ethos of mining so the ethos of going into a place dumping like a huge amount of money into a uncertain bet that is the bets uncertain but the returns are potentially exponentially large which is a very specific ethos you get when you come from a mining background because mm. that's what they do right. um, and all and then once you get that you end up with a very small physical location san francisco is actually very small um, it's like seven miles across 
and a professional environment where job hopping was completely normalized in the early semiconductor days. It was very normal to just spend a couple of years at one job and then go to another place and also maintain very friendly relationships with your competitors. This is a very unique business environment, especially when you compare it to more conservative environments like the East Coast at the time or the Midwest or Canada. In Toronto right now, if you job hop, if you move from firm to firm every couple of years or so, people start to look at you funny. It's not, it's not normalized. Um, they start to wonder, like, is there something wrong with you? And it's very easy to get a reputation as someone who won't stick in a job in Toronto um, because it's actually, you know, a very, a fairly, like for being such a big city, it's a pretty small town. And so where for the big five companies in San Francisco, where the average tenure of an engineer is less than three years, mm. that is really unusual here. So they're trying to import a business environment that has normalized things that are completely not normal in the existing finance-based business environment in Toronto, because that's where most of the economic power is. It's in the finance sector, which is a, a well-known to be a deeply conservative sector, uh, like in Canada. And so this thing where they're saying like, oh, we want this. This is, this is the economy we want. I'm like, one, you don't want it. And two, you can't have it. Like, I don't, like, there's nothing about the culture of this city that is amenable to this business practice. And you're right. trying to hack it. But what you're really doing is you're encouraging the smartest people in your city and your smartest young people to leave the city. You're creating a set of financial and cultural incentives where they will not see it see a possibility to be successful in the way that you're telling them they should be successful. And so they're going to leave and they're not going to come back because Canada cannot compete with San Francisco on salary. Well, they can't compete, period. I mean, uh, if they're going to play that game, I mean, and you look at, say, the RIM, you know, the RIM story or the, oh, the yeah. you know, BlackBerry as an example of what happens when they try to play, you know, uh, uh, the global digital economy you know, race or space race or whatever it is, rather than just building good tech and selling it to who wants it. You know, and there's there's a, a combination here of of techno solutionism, but also something more. Almost, uh, it's almost an extension of some kind of like systems theory. Well, you kind of say it in in the article you wrote on on Tim O'Reilly, who you know runs a publishing house. Is that he's a a popular. Uh, uh, you know, kind of a pro-tech pundit, and you say, and there's a quote, you know, he argues that the path to a good future for humanity lies in systems like the gig economy, distributed sensors, and artificial intelligence. Sure, sometimes the use of technology leads to less than optimal outcomes, but O'Reilly argues that this is the result of human error, not intrinsic aspects of the technology or business models he promotes. And really, the, 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 what we're talking about is people coming in, whether they're architects or urban planners, whether they're armed with, you know, Jane Jacobs uh, uh, or some bastardized version of Jane Jacobs or, uh, 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 gosh, you know, Bateson and Mead and whoever, uh, whoever sort of systems understanding of economics and urban dynamics and digital development. And then the humans, the real humans of a real place at a particular moment in time and culture, if they don't fit into that model, well, it's their fault, not the model's fault. 
Yeah, and I think that this is a big core symptom of one, the sidewalk way of looking at things, which is another issue I have with the project, but also of sort of the new tech way of looking at things, which is about the reduction of individuals to data and cultures to data. And one thing that Sidewalk likes to say is that we believe in building a better city through data. Like we, that's why we want all this data. It's why we're going to enable us to, to collect it. Um, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of questions about the use of data in the sidewalk project in Toronto, and as there should be, like whenever a big company is going to come in and be like, "How about we literally record everything that happens within this geographic area?" You should definitely be asking questions about how that data is going to be handled and what people are going to do to it. Um, and one thing, some uh, one of the sidewalk uh, staff members said, one of their engineers was last night was we are not going to in, be indiscriminately collecting data and not knowing what we're going to do with it. Like our intention was never to collect a huge pot of data for no reason. To which my response is like, that was never what we thought the problem was. Mm. No one thought that you were just going to put data in a bucket and then sort of make up to do with it later. Like the issue is not what we think you're going to do with it. Like at least my issue is that you're collecting it at all. Like you've moved, like, congratulations, you've successfully moved the goalposts of this conversation from someone asking like, why do you even need to be doing that? How, how about you just not to the, this little sort of penny counting of like, oh, well, what if we keep the data in this bucket instead of this bucket? What if we promise to not have the data leave Canada? Like, what if we just keep all the data within the sidewalk alphabet corporate structure? I'm like, well, that like that horse that then that horse has already left the barn and also that barn is on fire. Like you can do so much with this data within just the sidewalk structure, within the Google alphabet structure. They're like, you don't need to sell it. You don't need to monetize it in the way that people are traditionally nervous about the monetization of data. You can extract so much information and it is so powerful in these ways. I was never concerned that you were just gonna keep it and like be confused about what to do with it. I'm concerned that you want it and that you think you should have it. Uh, and I'm concerned that the city is thinking about giving it to you. I'm concerned that thinking about giving it to you on a 12-acre plot. I'm, I'm very concerned that they are even thinking about giving it to you on an 880-acre plot. But, like, that's a completely different debate. Right. I know. And the same thing happens, say, in, in New York City where uh, the mayor gives – I think it's, you know, Google or some other private company, the, the oh, you're going to give us free Wi-Fi in New York and all we have to do is give you all the oh, data on <laughs> <laughs> all oh, the data on every New Yorker. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't, they're, they're shifting this conversation from being, from being about like, no, let's talk about whether or not this, you should even be doing this. Because I don't think that, I think what you measure is what you value. Like you, me you measure things and you measure them because you value them, but then they also, those things you measure also become the things you value because it's the only things you can see. Right. And it becomes very easy to then say, oh, this is how you know somebody. This is how you know a person, an individual, a group of people, a population, a culture, or a city. And then it becomes much easier to say, well, especially because some, something like measurement and quantification has such an aura of completeness about it 
uh, it's very easy to stop trying to see other people, to see things in other ways. Uh, it's very easy to think that you don't need to know people or a city in a different way if you have an infinity of numbers that you can use to mod, to quote unquote model them. And I think that the emphasis on quantification, like to the exclusion of basically everything else, because that's how Google and Alphabet know things as they quantify them. Um, I think having that operate at a city level uh, is very dangerous, especially when you already have that movement happening. Um, I'm, I'm sure your listeners have read Seeing Like a State. Uh, I'm mm. sure that they may have also heard of a book called Roads to Power, which is a book about the development of the English road system in like the 16 and 1700s, where it talks about the development of bureaucratic language in order to describe a landscape that needed a road in like Wales or Scotland and how what were becoming civil engineers would take readings and knowledge and measurements from this place that was far away and transport it to London to describe it to, a, to bureaucrats. And, and justify what needed to happen. And it's a way of quantifying this landscape. And of course you pick it up because you can't actually describe everything about a landscape in a set of numbers. And so you can't describe everything about a city in a set of numbers and readings, no matter how many cameras you have. But the instinct that like, oh, these private public partnerships are the perfect venue to develop our city and we're gonna do it through the language of quantification, we're gonna do it through the language of efficiency is I think a bad move for cities to be taking in general and is a particularly risky move when you have the power imbalance that does exist between a company like Alphabet and the city government of Toronto. Toronto's a great city, it's a powerful city. I like Toronto a lot, I really enjoy living here, but it is not as powerful as Alphabet is. And I don't think that it necessarily has the resources it needs to stand up against what is essentially a colonizing power that is offering the chance to be cool in exchange for the, a huge amount of land and the ability to watch all of its citizens all of the time. Right. And, and I mean, most... <sighs> most engaged people or most people who care have, you know, or certainly who, who get out of their twenties unscathed. Um, they're no longer looking to be cool. They're looking to be sustainable. They're looking to be happy. You know, yeah. and it starts to feel that almost, that almost all technology is, uh, is, is somehow an obstacle to a good life, you know, and it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't, but, you know, technology is so wrapped up now in these sorts of models that even, I saw a great piece in The Guardian today about the Center for Humane Technology that was started by Tristan Harris and mm -hmm. some ex-Facebook people, partly, you know, after reading my stuff, after reading Present Shock and really coming, coming to terms with their own complicity in, you know, creating really addictive, nasty technologies, but... Um, this this article was arguing that uh, now that people like Mark Zuckerberg are are adopting the language of the humane technology movement, we're seeing how toothless it really is. That if Mark Zuckerberg can talk about, oh, I want to make sure your time on Facebook is time well spent because you'll be talking to friends rather than companies, we can see that, well, that's not really going to make 
a difference. It's just, you know, making gentler UXs and UIs um, just makes the manipulation more subtle, but participation is still not optional. <laughs> you know, it's still yeah. mandatory. And well, that's... I'm yeah. sure Tristan Harris thinks he's doing a good thing, but this whole thing where you have people who were working for the big five, who had a direct hand in designing these systems, who know they f***ed up, are now pivoting and being like, oh, but I know how to fix it now. I'm just like, blow me. I don't care what you have to say. Mm. Sit down, shut up, let the people who have actually been thinking about this in a critical way for longer than you've been doing this work have their say now. Like this, as far as I'm concerned, this is just another attention pivot where it's like, oh, this is a way for me to still stay in the spotlight and still do these and still like have control over this space. It's like, no, you f***ed up. You f***ed up real bad. It's now time for you to sit down and shut up. You don't get to be in charge anymore. And so right. the, the concept of like, one, like that's an excellent point where it's just like, yeah, this is just, this concept was always toothless because it was never as strong as it needed to be. The, co the concept should have never been like, oh, how do we make Facebook less bad? It's like, why don't we just consider burning Facebook to the ground? Mm. Why is that not an option? I really feel like it should be an option. I feel like a massive antitrust lawsuit like by the Justice Department should be an option that we can think about. Right, but people think of it as too big to fail at this point. It's like too big to fail what? Like, yeah, it's become a hugely powerful monopoly in our lives. Does it make people's lives better? Like lots of things have been massive monopolies in people's lives that didn't make the, that didn't make their lives better. Like didn't Coca-Cola used to be made of cocaine? Like yeah. lots of shitty things have happened and been very powerful, but that doesn't mean that they can't be done away with if they've proven that they're actively harmful and like not a useful part of people's lives. Right. Or at least you put warnings, you know, Surgeon General's warnings on the things. Can you imagine that when you sign into Facebook? Warning. This could be, you know, this can make you depressed, alone, anxious, and <laughs> shorten your life. Like doctors used to recommend cigarettes and they don't do that anymore. So I'm, I'm not terribly sympathetic to the view that like, oh, but Facebook is so power is so important and powerful that we simply can't get rid of it. I'm like, Facebook is a for-profit company that has existed for like about as long as I've been an adult. And it, in theory, it's publicly traded. Like it exists to serve a purpose. It's not serving that purpose. It probably never did. It was started essentially by teenagers and irritating teenagers at that. Right. <laughs> like, I don't care about the health and well-being of Facebook, and I think that it can be replaced by a scattering of smaller companies that compete fairly in the market, in so much as you can compete fairly in a market. I think it can be replaced by things that people, you know, at the risk of sounding old and crotchety, the risk at, like things that people used to do, like writing letters or going out to dinner with your friends. Or whatever like I don't really care what I know is that Facebook is actively dangerous and this the way that they've pushed the conversation to the point where it's just like oh but we can't disappear now we're too intrinsic it's like okay but that is actually the definition of an of a monopoly right 
that is the definition of someone who has unfairly manipulated their status in the market and systemically acquired and shut down all of their competitors or folded them into their own business. Like they operate as a textbook monopoly, as a textbook vertical and horizontal monopoly in this space. So of course the Justice Department should do the thing that I pay them to do as an American taxpayer, like, and file an antitrust lawsuit against them. Right. I mean, it's interesting. We're talking about, you know, the dangers of, of you know, giant digital corporations and all when, you know, your first book, The, the Coming Swarm, was really about the danger of, of, in some sense, the other side. You know, the, the danger posed by uh, DDoS attacks and uh, uh, all the, the kids on 4chan gathering together or, uh, uh, you know, Russian hackers and all. Uh, I mean, I feel like I wasn't really talking about it as a danger. Right, it's true. I feel like one thing I was talking about in that book is that there are ways. One one thing I wanted to say was that, like, okay, a picture of a thousand or a million people at a march is a very powerful image. Um, how do we get that power on the internet? And the one way that jumped out to me was you can get that through this mechanism that you can manifest the presence of many, many, many people. And this is one way you can do it. Um, And because it's accessible in these ways and because it's come up specifically through these channels, it has this politics attached to it. Um, And it's not, that's not dangerous so much as it is saying like, here's, here's a path of power. Here's a way power can manifest. Uh, And that's something that I think that I'm still doing in this project where I'm like, here's why this project is attractive at this time and this place in like for these people it's fitting into this history it fits into these patterns it's hitting all of these weak spots and selling itself in these ways that are very attractive but here's why it's going the way it's going right so i guess you know in closing the thing i'm interested in is is you know, a lot of a lot of our listeners live in towns and cities that are all thinking about becoming smart cities and tech hubs, and you know, and in some cases it's great. You know, oh, we're going to use this, you know, abandoned, you know, factory and kit it out with really good Wi-Fi and have local entrepreneurs develop new technologies in these beautiful new co-working spaces. I mean, and on a certain level. There's a way to do that that's not terrible. There's a way to do it that's, that's, that is good. I mean, even though most of the language around it usually is nauseating. Um, is there, do you have any, I mean, and I guess this will be at the end of your dissertation when you're done with it, um, a sort of uh, best practices or things to be aware of or ways for people to approach the meeting in their town, um, things that they should look out for? Are there things that we should say? I mean, they're doing it right in my town in Hastings on Hudson. We have an old waterfront that now they want to, you know, do some great things, you know, urban agriculture and uh, an eco school and all sorts of things. But, you know, of course, there's talk about high tech entrepreneurialism that'll be homegrown and, uh, and, and create, you know, revenue for our city, our town. The thing to do is avoid the VC trap. So because of how the VC model functions, which is they make a bunch of bets and then one of them has to pay off exponentially in order to cover the cost of all these other bets that didn't pay off. Um, So that means that VCs have a strong preference 
for companies that have the potential to quote unquote scale. And what scale means is like scale exponentially to dominate their market sector, to have millions of users, millions of customers, um, and to and to become the what is now now known as the unicorn company. Uh, but that's a little bit of a misnomer because unicorns refer to valuations and not actually exit profits. Right. Um, but what that means is that when you have these smaller cities or literally any city that's not San Francisco wanting to start a tech economy and the only thing they know is the VC model of funding, scaling, exit, and acquisition is these aren't stable companies. These aren't companies that are going to be comfortable with, you know, 500 to 1,000 regular customers. They're not, they're not existing to serve small city scales. They, like, these tech companies exist to serve global economic scales. And unfortunately, one, that's very unlikely to happen. Like, most startups do not end up having a successful exit. Um, even most VC startups don't have a successful exit um, where people end up making the huge profits that people are sort of seeing un like unreasonably as a, as a norm for this type of economy. But that means they're passing up all of these opportunities to have smaller businesses. Right. Smaller businesses that make money and don't, don't exit at all. I mean, it's if it's a that make money, employ people, support their own local and regional economies. Um, and it's all because of this VC logic and the values that then these funders put on to these small companies, these early stage companies where it's like, well, this is why you need to move to San Francisco because you need to scale. You can't just be a local business. You have right. to be a scaled global unicorn business. Exactly. Which is, goes back to sort of what you were talking about at the beginning, that as every small city around the world creates these almost nearly identical spaces for the young sort of thoroughbred horses of tech development to come in and get trained to maybe be the winner of the Kentucky Derby someday mm -hmm. um, is crazy, you know, as opposed to if you are going to try to promote some kind of a business activity in your town, thinking about business activity that is uh, specific and particular to the place where you're at, you know, and scaled appropriately to that region to, to serve the community that, um, that is building the thing, you know, yeah. rather than these weird zones, these kind of generic international business development VC zones, you know, that are popping up in every city just to extract our value rather than circulate it. Yeah, like as soon as someone from, as soon as a VC from the Valley shows up in your town, you should really just run them out on a rail because they're there to expropriate value from your local economy. That's how the VC model works, is they give a company money, and in exchange for that money, they get an ownership share. And that ownership share is literally taking money out of your town. So right. like when, when, when small towns are like, oh, but we need to attract big name venture to support our local startup economy, it's like, no, no, you do not. You do not need to do that, and you should not do that. It will literally ruin everything because all you will be doing is shipping money away from you and encouraging the people who are starting businesses in your town to leave. 
Right. Well, that's when, when I told the uh, and people from Malaysia who wanted me to speak there about the new the next digital economy. When I told them that, they said, well, thank you anyway, but we'll find a different speaker. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear it because it's like, oh, but if we become like San Francisco, we will have all the money like San Francisco. And I'm like, have you been to San Francisco recently? Right. Like, but so this question of like when cities like when cities are just like, oh, well, we're going to be the next Silicon Valley. I'm just like, really? That's what you want? <laughs> I don't think that's what you want. And more of the point, you actually can't have it. You don't have the, the economic, social, or business resources that enabled this market to develop. Right. right. And like what you need instead is a sustainable, local, regional economy. And it is okay to have that. That is a good and honorable thing to have. But people see this great wealth sort of floating in front of their face. And they're just like, no, 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 we want that. I'm like, okay, it's going to ruin everything. Exactly. It's like if you're doing great plays in Chicago or Cleveland, I mean, no, you may not get a Tony award, but, or a Grammy or a whatever, an Oscar, but you're doing great theater for thousands of people Mm -hmm. in a, in a real way. It's just not everything has to be part of that giant generic global you know, market of, of apparent success because, I mean, it's not really success in the end. It's just a, another form of robbery or extraction. And, you know, not, it, it's, n- it's not the thing to be so proud of, you know. The thing to be proud of is actually making it work in a way that helps everybody in your ecosystem rather than hurting anybody. Yeah. And it's disappointing when regions sort of throw that aside and are just like no but we want we want to be new york we want to be san francisco i'm just like why can't you just be cleveland just yeah. be cleveland it's okay to be cleveland i know it's great to be cleveland you it's know great to be cleveland. they have such a good science museum yeah yeah and it's tricky. I mean, and it also has to do with, you know, how the larger economy, how it affects regions and how difficult it is to develop sort of more circular, sustainable, uh, you know, local-based economic activity. You know, our, our currency isn't designed for it. Our banking system's not designed for it. Um, and our, our incentive system's not designed for it. But yeah. um, that's oh, yeah. what we're here for. And, you know, that's hopefully, you know, one of the great outcomes of your work is to expose Um, you know, the underlying logic of this to more people, you know, so that we can, uh, at least locally, if not nationally, you know, redesign these systems um, to our to our mutual benefit. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. And if people want to learn more, um, I would suggest they go to oddletters.com, which is uh, where most of your recent uh, articles are. There's the the Google's guinea pig city, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of what we're talking about now. And the the, that piece so is it, is it does anybody who's it who's anybody listening why is anybody, why is anybody listening to tim o'reilly yeah and- which is just my favorite i mean that <laughs> that kept me up at night and just in a good way um you know because because and the beauty of it is that none of these people are like evil at least not consciously evil it's just their way that they're enacting stuff is misguided or is is informed by, by the acceptance of models that they don't realize are fungible, they're changeable, they're not the laws of nature, they're just new forms, other forms of code that, that need to be revised. Yeah. 
So thanks so much. Thanks so much for your work and helping people see things in, in new and strange ways and, and being, I don't know, you're, you're being so aggressive about it without being mean spirited. Um, I don't know how to do that. Once I get worked up, I just get angry and you get effective. And that's a, a, a great thing for me to learn how to model. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> Anytime. Maybe it's all the time you're spending in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Molly Sauter, author of The Coming Swarm. You can find more of her work and writing at oddletters.com. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a P-H at teamhuman.fm. This is Team Human, our last best hope for people. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.